The reading this morning comes from Luke 19, starting at verse 28, and can be found on page 1053 on the Bibles in front of you. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Good morning, everyone. Let me just say a couple of things. We on, Pete? There we go. Neville and Kathy Naden are here, along with Nathaniel and his new wife, Pip. Can I just get you to say welcome to these guys? They're our mission partners and son and daughter-in-law. Great to have you here. If you've not caught up, Neville and Kathy have moved from Broken Hill Church. They're now in a national role with BCA, and they are just at the beginning of doing that. They've moved from Broken Hill to Dubbo, which is where... Um, They've come from historically, and so they're back with family and friends. They're looking great. It's great to have you here. But if you want to catch up and see what's happening nationally in terms of Indigenous ministry, do catch Neville and Kathy after the service. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the great blessing of Christian fellowship that we can be together as one in Christ with all our different backgrounds. And Father, as we come this Palm Sunday, help us to stop and just give thanks again in our hearts and minds and in our lives and be people who trust and obey you because of what Jesus has done, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you know about the Catholic nun whose name is Sister Helen Prejean. 
She became famous in the 80s for a book that she wrote, sorry, in the 90s for a book she wrote about her experience in the 80s of being a spiritual advisor to two men on death row. She was, first of all, the spiritual advisor, which is the person who would come and they would confess their sins to, uh, for a convicted killer whose name was Patrick Sonnier. And Sonnier had killed two teenagers and he was sentenced to die by the electric chair of Louisiana's Angola State Prison. She was the confessor for him right through to his execution and then another man who was also sentenced to die. And the title of the book was called Dead Man Walking. Now, you may have seen the movie. It was made famous uh, by Susan Saradin, who took on the role of Sister Prejeanne, and Sean Penn, who was the convicted killer. It's worth saying the book tells the accurate story, the movie, the Hollywood version, which is not quite the same. But the title of the book, Dead Man Walking, came from the phrase that was traditional in American prisons, and it would designate a man condemned to death as a dead man walking. And the guards would call out as the man went to the chair, dead man walking, dead man walking here. And they're not quite sure where the phrase came from. Uh, was it a superstition to do with the fact that this was a condemned man and you shouldn't touch him? Uh, was it a sense of honour that here was someone who was honoured, if I can say, amongst thieves and amongst murderers that he would pay the ultimate price? Uh, was it a sense that he was elite? Uh, look, we don't know. But in any case, the symbolism was very clear that as the man walked, he literally was a dead man walking. He was dead already. And I mention this because today is Palm Sunday. And it's the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, where the church has traditionally stopped and remembered Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Now, because we tend to have series... They often finish the week before Easter, and we finished our series the week before the week before Easter, and I thought, we're going to have a Palm Sunday message today. But we're doing it differently to how some traditional churches would have it. They would have lots of palms here. Um, and if you read John's Gospel, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, John tells us that there were palms that were waved, and that's why it got the name. Um, traditionally, you may have come in and you would receive a little cross that was made out of a palm that you would take home. And if you were very devout, you would keep that for the year and then on Ash Wednesday, you would burn it and mark yourself with the burnt palm that you collected last year on Palm Sunday. Uh, there'd be special food. You'd have figs often at church afterwards. Now, why figs? Because en route to Jerusalem, do you remember what Jesus did? He cursed the fig tree and then it came to life and you celebrate with figs. Now, I don't mind if we have figs today, but they're a bit expensive to have for our morning tea. But you wonder, is this really getting to the heart of what Palm Sunday's about? And there's no doubt there's a lot of drama and theatre and emotion tied up in the reading we have today. But Palm Sunday is not so much about a dead man walking as if I can say it's about a dead man riding. And that dead man riding is the Lord Jesus. He's one week away from his death. And as we come to the reading... Typical of all the Gospels, the events, in a sense, focus in on these seven days and what is to follow. And roughly a third of the Gospels, some have slightly more, John's Gospel, others have slightly less, but roughly a third is taken up with this 
incredible week of activity that starts on this day, Palm Sunday, and goes through to the resurrection. Because these are the significant events that the gospel writers want to tell us about. And there's a deep irony about the events that we're going to look at today, on Palm Sunday. There is a great sense of colour and emotion. There's a real sense of joy and theatre as Jesus comes in. And you can just see the crowds and we're going to look at what happens on this day. But in just a few days' time, there will also be colour. There'll also be emotion. And there'll also be theatre, but it'll be a very different kind. The colour will be the colour of blood that will be stained red on the hill of Golgotha. The emotion will no longer be the joy of songs and praise, but it will be a deep sense of hatred and despising as they call for Jesus' head. As Pilate offers him to the crowd for release, the crowd bathe it, they want his blood and release Barabbas. And there's an incredible sense of theatre and drama, but it's the drama of injustice. As an innocent man is first beaten and mocked and then crucified on a cross. And today we're at Luke's Gospel. If you've got your Bibles there, do open up. We're at page 1053. And I've picked this version of Palm Sunday. They're all accurate, they're all true, but they give you different insights to different Gospel writers. And I thought this one very helpfully, I think, understands or helps us to understand the nature of what's happening on Palm Sunday and how it points to the most significant event, Good Friday and the resurrection that comes in just six days' time. There's four words for us today, identity, love, judgment and response that I'm going to work through as we think about what happens with this dead man walking on Palm Sunday. Firstly, identity. Uh, One of the most important questions people can ever ask is this, who is this Jesus? And when I talk with people who are new to the Christian faith or perhaps antagonistic to the Christian faith or pondering the Christian faith, one of the most important questions that I say to them is, you've got to work out who this Jesus is. And one of the responses that will often come back is this, you claim that this Jesus is kind of God and special, why doesn't he ever say it himself? It's a good question to ask. And I often put it this way, look, When you look at the first half of the Bible before Jesus come, which is the Old Testament, you've got a faith that is what's called technically monotheism. There's one God. When you come to the New Testament, you get this new chapter emerges in the story of who this one God is. He's one God in three persons. Now, let me just say that leap from what's called monotheism to the Trinity is massive. Now, we've grown up with thinking and understanding and hearing categories of God being three in one. You saw it expressed in the baptism service, the Apostles' Creed. You've got the Nicene Creed, which we recited this morning at the 8 o'clock traditional communion service. And that thinking is deep in our psyche, but it was not at all in the psyche of the first century Jewish people. They just thought there's one God. How on earth could anyone else, particularly someone human, claim to be God? And so it doesn't surprise me at all that Jesus, when he begins his ministry, doesn't speak up, but rather starts to do the things that you would expect God to do. 
And at the same time, he does all the other things you'd expect the Messiah to do because, you see, there's a number of things that they were hoping for to come. And when you read through the Old Testament, there's, if I can say, numbers of streams of prophecies about how God is going to act. One of the earliest is a great prophet like Moses will come, Deuteronomy 18.15. As you move through, you've got King David, and then after King David is gone, you've got prophecies that another one like David will come. We celebrate that in terms of at Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born. This will be a child in the lineage of David. And those prophecies are rich and many in the Old Testament. There's others as you get towards the end of the Old Testament that God himself is going to come down and act to bring salvation. Now, all of these prophecies and predictions, and there's more, get fulfilled in one person. And how does that one person announce that to the world? Well, he does it gradually and slowly. For those who've got ears to hear and eyes to see, they start to work out this is who this Jesus is. And when you come to Palm Sunday, Jesus is really saying to the world, but particularly to his Jewish people, I'm taking, if I can say, the cloak off to show you intentionally and deliberately who I am. Up until this point, his identity as Messiah had been, if I can say, hidden from the people, though he had done all the things you'd expect the Messiah to do. There is one exception, though, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, the woman at the well, the Samaritan, the most outcast person you could have had in that day. She actually discovers in the flesh when Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. It's amazing. But to everyone else, no, there's a sense of cloak and dagger about it. But until you come to this point, Palm Sunday. And what I want to do is I just want to put up on the uh, screen there a picture because that's what it would have looked like. A lot of colour, a lot of emotion, a lot of theatre. But there's an Old Testament prophecy there in Zechariah chapter 9-9 which I want you to just have a look at on the screen because this is a very important prediction that was made about the coming of God's promised King. Now it's often read at Easter time and particularly on this day. Let me read it to you. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. And so the prophecy is about the people of God in the city of God, if I can put it that way, Jerusalem. There's going to be a day when you rejoice and sing greatly. Why? Because your king is going to come to you, righteous and victorious. How? Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So stored away in their database of, if I can say, information about the coming Messiah is this particular prophecy that one day he's going to ride into the city of Jerusalem, how? Meekly and on an ass. Not just any ass, but an unridden donkey. And so they're waiting for these things to be fulfilled as the the, uh, decades go on. And we pick up the story at Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is, if I can say, across a valley outside the city of Jerusalem. Very significant place. There's lots of things in the Gospels that take place there at the Mount of Olives. One of them is that that's where the journey in on Palm Sunday takes place. And there are a number of summits that made up the Mount of Olives, about four in total. And they overlook Jerusalem, they overlook the Temple Mount from the east across the Kidron Valley and the Pool of Siloam. 
And from there, he sends two disciples and he says to them, verse 30, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt that tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who went ahead found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Now, put your hand up if you've seen Star Wars. Any one of the movies. Okay, we've all seen Star Wars. Now, do you remember in Star Wars you'd have the Jedi? They're the good guys. And Luke Skywalker becomes a Jedi warrior. And one of the things you would sometimes see with the Jedis is they kind of play mind tricks with those who are underneath them who are kind of more inferior. And they would just kind of look at them and... And all of a sudden, the uh, person they're talking to would do exactly what they wanted. Do you remember that kind of Jedi mind trick? Mm. Now, you do wonder if Jesus is playing a Jedi mind trick with the disciples. Just go up to them and say, mm, Lord needs you. And they do it. Now, it's not like that at all. <laughs> this is what I think happened. And I'm fairly confident about it. Jesus is very deliberate about what he's doing. And he's gone ahead prior to this and spoken to the owners of the unridden cult in Bethpage. And he's given them a password. The Lord needs it. And then when the time has come, he sends his disciple and basically says, this is the password. You go up to them. And it's interesting, it says uh, the owners... Ask them, why are you untying the cult? Now, that tells you that these are poor people. They're not rich enough to own an unridden donkey outright. They've actually got to share the animal. And he's gone up and said to them, look, this is going to happen and this is the password. This is what I think's happened. And so the disciples go ahead and as they're untying the cult, its owners ask them, why are you untying the cult? No Jedi mind trick, they just say the password. The Lord needs it. Okay, you can take it. And I say that because, you see, what's happening here is incredibly intentional and deliberate. Jesus has organised ahead of time for this prophecy to be enacted. And what he's doing is for anyone, if I can say, who's got eyes to see and who knew their Old Testament, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. And he rides into Jerusalem knowing full well that in six days, the colour and the emotion and the theatre will have changed from songs of praise, cloaks on the ground, and adulation to bloodshed, jeering, and execution. He knows that. But he rides in. And the prophecy is very helpful because, you see, he's not on some big white steed with a great breastplate on and a sword strapped to his side, kind of triumphantly marching into the city. Now he's on an unridden donkey. That's why that picture's helpful. That does not look like a conquering king, but yet that is what the prophecy was about. Shout, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. And this is the king who's going to bring peace. He's the promised king. The way he comes speaks entirely of who he is. He is this promised king who comes in humility. And he comes to bring peace. Verse 35, they brought the cult to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the cult 
and put Jesus on. As the, as the people went along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And people would spread their cloaks in front of a king who was coming home after a great victory. It was kind of like the, um, the welcome back ceremony. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And you can just see the people there very excited about what's happening. Because they are thinking the promised king is now entering Jerusalem and maybe this is the time when the Romans are finally going to be kicked out. Yeah, he's not on a big steed with the sword strapped to his waist. But maybe this is the one and they've seen Jesus and all the miracle he's done and they know that this man is special from God, who has special power. Maybe this day he's going to save us from Rome. Let's see what happens. If he is the promised king, the second thing you see from this passage is his love. And in particular, the compassionate tears that flow. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, I tell you. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And the Pharisees are upset. They know what's being sung. You see, the song they were singing was Psalm 118, announcing God's salvation. And they can see the way Jesus is riding in, and they rebuke the disciples, tell them to be quiet, and Jesus just rebukes the uh, Pharisees. He says, friends, if they shut up, do you know what? Even the rocks are going to cry out with joy because I'm coming and then as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city he wept over it and it's such a striking gear change you've got all the joy and all the color and all the singing and what the commentators understand is this that the road that goes in from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem it would have come around a corner and as he came around the corner, Jerusalem would have lit up, so to speak, in front of his eyes. And as the city comes into view, Luke records and the others record, he wept. Now, I know there's a saying, real men don't cry. And uh, some of us may have been brought up that way as kids. Kind of be tough, hang in there, real men don't cry. Let me just say I'm happy to shed a tear in a romantic movie, like going to them with Kath, happy to watch chick flicks. I do get a bit teary, truth be told. But that's not what we're talking about here. Now, when you see this verse, and it says he wept over the city, um, the word wept is to weep uncontrollably. It's not like me sitting in the dark in Hoyts. <laughs> pretending that nothing's happening, I've just got an itchy eye. <laughs> or sitting at home watching Netflix. No, this is like when I have to, and this is one of the worst things, share really bad news and let someone know that someone very close to them has died. And I don't know if you've been there on an occasion like that, but that's the closest I can think of emotionally in terms of what's happening. And you may have seen that, where a person just breaks down and they weep because of awful news that has been shared. And you see, that's the language that is being communicated here. That literally in the midst of this party that's going on, Jesus comes around the corner 
And he sees the city of God and all his fellow countrymen, the Jews, that would have populated that magnificent place. And he just weeps uncontrollably. Let's see why. Verse 42, he says, If you, even you, speaking of Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And see, as he comes around the corner, he's confronted by the blindness of all of God's people to the reality of who he is, the promised king who's come to save. And his immediate and spontaneous response emotionally is just to weep. And I was sitting preparing this thinking, I wonder, have we become hardened in our hearts to the reality that people are blind to God and to Jesus and to the salvation he offers and the peace that comes from his life, death and resurrection? Because most people are blind to the reality that Jesus is God who came to bring us peace with God and that we're lost in our sin. And I wonder, do we weep over our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbours, our suburb, our city, our country that is blind to the reality of the gospel? And what you see here on Palm Sunday is this incredible expression of love as he breaks down and weeps for his people. Compassionate tears. But the compassion changes to a note of judgment. And it's worth saying this, if you are to understand Jesus and what he did on the cross in Good Friday, there are two very important concepts you've got to hold together. One is the love of God that you see here in the Lord Jesus as he weeps for people who do not know what will bring them peace and his coming. The other is the justice of God and the judgment of God that God will judge our sin. I'll talk about how they come together shortly, but those two things are on display here on Palm Sunday. God's deep love expressed through Jesus in his tears for the people, but also his judgment on sin and rebellion. And you get it in two ways. Firstly, there's a prediction of God's judgment. Have a look at uh, verse 43. It says, the days will come upon you. Now that phrase that Jesus uses, the days will come, is a phrase the prophets would use all through the Old Testament to predict something would happen. And it may be salvation with the coming of the Messiah. It also may be judgment. And Jesus says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will leave, not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, what he's talking about here is the reality that Jerusalem in 37 years' time, historically in AD 70, was surrounded on every side. They were laid siege to by the Roman army under the Emperor Titus. And the city and the temple were sacked and destroyed. And what Jesus was predicting was that this will come as God's judgment upon you. Why? 
because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God has turned up in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. And what did they do? They killed him. God has come to bring them peace. What did they do? They hid their eyes. Crucify him. Now, if the prediction is not enough, he then enacts judgment upon them. And what follows in Luke's gospel is the recollecting of the second clearing of the temple. We saw the first one, which is early in his ministry in John's gospel in chapter 2. But as he enters the city, what's the first thing he does? When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And Jesus weeps out of compassion and love for his people, but he also brings judgment with the very next breath. And what gets him most angry is it the hypocrisy of religious leaders, those who should have known better, but have actually turned their back on God. And he condemned the Pharisees for the way that they tied the people up in knots with all their rules and laws and regulations that did nothing to help them know the living God and profited from it. And the very place where people should have been able to meet God and find him and his presence, the temple, in that day and age, what had become a commercial market that they made money out of. And there's a great anger here as he drives those out who are selling. And it's worth saying this, you will never understand the cross unless you understand the great compassion of God and his love for us, along with his anger at sin in the way we turn away from him. And both those things come together in the cross. Because of God's love, he's given us his son, Jesus. Because of his anger at our sin, he judged his son, Jesus, in our place. And I do want to say this, um, there's a sobering nature to this passage. Because it warns us that judgment is real. And that we must not be blind and close our eyes to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But we must come to him as the one who is the promised saviour of the world. And what you see here as the passage finishes as we've been thinking about judgment is that there's a great divide. Every day he was teaching at the temple but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And the final thing you see on this Palm Sunday is the divisive nature of who Jesus was. You see, he called for a response. And one response, the officials of the day, was to want to kill him. The other response was people who saw in him and heard in him something of God. They didn't fully understand it, but as it says in the text, they hung on his words. They wanted more of him. Now, we know that the crowd turned very shortly. And they used their own words to put him to death. But this is the nature of who Jesus is. He divides people. 
And you see, our world will welcome the Jesus who teaches nice things. And he's famous for many of his sayings and many of his stories. The Good Samaritan story, I remember listening to Tanya Plibersek, who declared that she doesn't believe in God, but she likes his teaching, as in Jesus' teaching. It was on Q&A a number of years ago. And Jesus is popular at that level, someone who people can kind of hold on to some nice things that he said. But the Jesus who says, no, I am the only way, I am the only truth, and I am the only life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, he's not that popular. People don't like hearing that. They want to live their own lives without Jesus. They don't want to think about that reality that they need to trust in Jesus and follow him. The Jesus who loves little children will always be popular. The Jesus who judges and clears the temple and condemns false religion is not. The Jesus who says, I am the only saviour, is the one who divides the world. We can either trust his word and in what he's done or reject him. So what do we learn this Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is really the beginning where Jesus openly declares to the world who he is. He's the promised king who has come to bring peace, a peace between us and God. And you see this promised king is full of compassion. And if you wonder if there's a God out there who loves you, look no further than the Lord Jesus. He loves you deeply. And he wants you to know that he can bring you peace with God. Open your eyes and see him this Easter. But Palm Sunday tells us that there is a reality of judgment coming. It will come. It came upon Jerusalem back then and it will finally come on all people at the end of the world when the Lord Jesus returns. And he enacted that judgment in a small way in the temple to show he was serious. And Palm Sunday shows we actually need to make a response. Will we do away with Jesus or will we accept him as the promised king, our own Lord and Saviour? Because you see, he is the one who's come and died in our place. And next week on Good Friday, we celebrate that reality that for God so loved the world that he judged not our sins on that day in our bodies, but placed them upon him, his son, so that whoever believes will have eternal life. And I was thinking about what do I want you to do this morning? I want you just to believe this good news. And there's a sobriety to it, isn't it? Because, you see, as we begin this week walking into the Easter story, we realise that Jesus came because we can't save ourselves and because of our own sin and rebellion and blindness. And yet there is a great sense of joy deeply about it as we realise he's done it for us. And all I have to do is take hold of him with an open hand and say, I trust you and I trust what you've done for me. And I will follow you in this world until I see you in glory. Friends, Palm Sunday prepares us for Easter and the wonder of his love for us, where he took our place and our judgment 
and he calls us to come and follow. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your wondrous love that we discover at Easter. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He loves us deeply. He's borne our punishment and judgment and he calls us to come. Father, we just say thank you. We believe in you, we trust in him and we want to follow him with all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.